Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and the wild beasts of the earth. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the lamb. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. They had tails with stingers like scorpions. And in their tails, they had power to torment people for five months. That is just a sampling of what's in just one section of the book of Revelation. And if you have any common sense in you at all, you're thinking, nah, I'm good. Let's go to another book of the Bible. I'm good. I'm good. Let's, let's just skip right over that. But the reason we have to study the book of Revelation is the book of Revelation is the most encouraging, life-giving, and bolding book in the entire Bible. And the fact is, you can take bits and pieces of any book in the Bible and you can make it say scary things. Today we're starting a study called Revelation Understood. And what I want to do is help all of us read and understand the book of Revelation as it was read and understood by the people who read it in the first century. We're going to talk about how it was read, how it was interpreted, and how it impacted their lives. And most of all, how it's life-giving and it's a warning. The problem is, when it comes to the book of Revelation, over the last 150 years, creepy, wacko televangelists have hijacked this book. People who have no education or literary understanding of how to interpret ancient literature have taken this book and given all of us the bejeebies about the end of the world and how it, 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 there are some very frightening things in there. But what they have done is that they have twisted and contorted its meaning. So, for instance, when was the last time you did a Bible study in your group on the book of Revelation? When was the last time in your devotional time you went through the book of Revelation? How many scripture verses do you have memorized from the book of Revelations? This book has been hijacked. Now, there, the book of Revelation starts with a promise and it ends with a warning. The promise at the beginning is, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and who are and blessed are those who hear it, take it to heart what is written, because the time is near. So people are going to get a lot out of this book. But the warning is, at the end of the book, Revelations chapter 22, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of the prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. So 150 years 
People have stolen the book of Revelation from the church. And what we're going to do is we're going to steal it back. And what we're going to find is something that is mind-blowing and encouraging and emboldening and frightening and staggering in our understanding of who Jesus is and who we are as his followers. Let's just jump right into it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 starts this way. It says, the very first line, the revelation from Jesus Christ. And you have to understand from the outset what this means. Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. It means unveiling. And so if I was to draw a picture, it would look like this. There's our physical world, the one that we live in, right? The physical world. What we don't see right now, because we are blocked in our understanding, because we can only understand things that we can understand through our five senses. What we can see, what we can taste, what we can touch, what we can hear, and what we can smell. There is a dividing line, however, between the physical world and the spiritual world. And most Christians don't understand that right now in this room, and it's different because it's not space and time, but we are in the presence of other spiritual beings right now. We are physical beings in a physical world apprehended through the five senses. And so what the book of Revelation is, is this is the apocalypsis. It is the removal of the barrier between the physical world and the spiritual world. And so when we read the book of Revelations... We see from the spiritual world what's going on in the spiritual world. And this, we see what the spiritual world sees when it's looking at our physical world. And so it says, the revelation from Jesus Christ. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. What we're going to look at are the things that have taken place and will take place. And he made it known, sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, who is John? I have a picture here of a painting of John. Uh, if you remember, when Jesus started his ministry along the Sea of Galilee, he called Simon and Andrew and James and John. So he's known John since the very beginning. And John now is the last remaining apostle alive. John also wrote the books in the Bible of the Gospel of John and the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. Now, we need to understand where this John is and who he is and where he is because I want to show you some pictures here in a second. In 33 AD, Jesus is killed and then Jesus looks at his friend John and says, I need you to take care of my mom. We know this from the Gospel of John because we're told on the cross, Jesus looked at looked at his mother and John and said, woman, here is your son and here is your mother. In other words, John became the caretaker of Mary. We're told then from 33 AD to 66 AD 
that John lived in Israel and cared for Jesus's mother for 33 years. And then something happened that rocked the world of everybody that lived in Israel. The Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem in 66 AD. Here's a photo from the Arch of Titus that is in Rome and this big arch that is in Roman or that's in Rome and Titus came and brought the Roman legions and destroyed the city. And church history tells us then that in from 66 AD John fled with Mary to Ephesus. And so I want to show you this map The Apostle John became, like some of you that are watching and some that are a part of our church, they became war refugees. And so they left Jerusalem right here and went to this city called Ephesus, the second largest and most important city in all of the Roman Empire, or over here is Rome. So John became the pastor of churches that were started by the Apostle Paul some 15 to 20 years earlier. And he immediately became the pastor of all of those people. The problem is Christians in that area were being persecuted for their faith and it caught up to John too. John got sent to an island called Patmos. Some of you uh, are parents, right? And you've sent your kids to time out, right? The Romans, when they didn't, when they, when someone didn't, when they committed a crime that wasn't worth getting murdered, They would find a merchant ship that was going to an island and they would say, hey, take this guy and drop him off in the middle of nowhere. And that's what they did with John. I was there in 2014 uh, on the Aegean Sea and I broke all the laws. I went to the very top of the boat because I wanted to get this video for you. And so here is a video of me, basically a stowaway on the top of this ship as we're approaching the island of Patmos. So take a look at this. So it's just in the middle of nowhere. And John gets dropped off on this island. And then it says, that John says, I, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And then verse 10 says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven most prominent churches in Western Turkey. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I was there this past summer. We're going to talk about this later on. And so in this, see this map here, in this area, John, there's the map, there is the map. John is pastoring this, these Christians who are going through a terrible time and Jesus wants to give them a message. Now, let me say this. For those of you uh, who are uh, new to our church, we want you to read the last book of the Bible, Revelations 1, 2, and 3 this week. We're going to be studying bits and pieces as a part of this in the groups that we're a part of. And hopefully, whether you're watching online or here, here in person, you're going to join a group. We're going to look at the issues that were addressed in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, 2, and 3. And it's, it's going to be a little unsavory and difficult to hear, but we're going to talk about it anyway. We have to understand, you always have to ask the question when you're reading a passage in the Bible, what problem are they trying to solve with this section of the Bible? And what problems then 
was the book of Revelation trying to fix? And so we're going to look at the problems, we're going to look at the issues, or as my British friends say, the controversies that are going on. Did I say that right? I practiced. No. How do you say it? It's not controversies? Not controversies. How do you say it? Controversy. Come on. I practice this all week. The controversies. You're British. So anyway. All right. Uh, for those of you who can't see this online, it's my friend Mark. So um, three major issues that the book of Revelation addresses before we get into all of the super creepy, weird, bizarre stuff that freaks people out. Issue number one, disciples of Jesus putting the empire in which they live before Jesus. Every single person on the planet is a citizen of a country, whether you want to be a citizen of that country or not. If you're in that, you're a citizen of that country. And you're going to call that what the Bible calls an empire. And the issue that the book of Revelation was trying to, trying to correct is that disciples of Jesus were putting their empire, the Roman empire at the time, for us, it's Americans, before Jesus. And let me just pause and say, you're going to find as we look at these problems that these are the exact same issues that we're facing today. And the prophecy of what's going to happen and what Jesus is going to do as a result of these will be just as frightening to those of us today as it was in the first century. So disciples of Jesus put in the empire before Jesus. Look what it says. Look what Jesus said to the church in Smyrna. This is uh, modern day Izmir in Turkey. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. That's to them and to us. Do not be afraid of what you and I are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. I want to ask the question, why are people persecuting Christians? And what I want to say is, they weren't persecuting Christians, they were persecuting obstinacy. People who weren't willing to put the empire before everything else. Now, we're, my, we're all my Trump haters out here. Do you remember when President Trump threatened to withhold federal funding to cities that provided sanctuary to illegal immigrants? Remember when that happened? Telling all this, including Philadelphia, I'm going to pull all your federal funding if you don't get in line with my policy. What a jerk. Who would do that? What an immoral jerk. You know who would do that? Every single president we've ever had in the United States has done that. Not just Donald Trump. Every single one. If you don't get in line with my policies, I'm not going to give you money. And this has been going on since the Roman Empire. Everybody talks about... During the time of the Apostle Paul in the mid-60s, there was a Roman ruler named Nero who was a masochistic murderer. But it's the guy that came after him that murdered more people than all of them combined. And his name was Domitian. And, the re and he didn't have a problem with Christians. He had a problem with people all throughout the empire who went, weren't willing to fall in line and put the empire first. And so what happened was, he did this. He had one of these installed 
in every, can you show the picture? In every single city. And it's a genius way of making sure you don't have any rebellion. Every single town square that had a city big enough would have one of these. And it was an altar. And there are flames here. And on the altar, someone would take their hand and they would drop incense into the fire and they would say to prove that the empire was more important than anything. They would say, Caesar is what? Caesar is Lord. Curios, Lord. A divine emperor who controls everything on the planet that is worthy of our total worship and devotion. Christians came along and said, we got a problem with that. Because we are told that every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is the curios. We cannot drop incense and sacrifice. You, my friend, are going to have to just go ahead and kill me. And so what do you think all the Christians did in the first century? About half of them said, I'm not going to do that. I mean, if, if that means my death, my, my imprisonment, I'm going to lose business, so be it. But the other half were like, it's just words. It's just words. In fact, the people that would persecute the Christians knew that, listen, they're just words. We don't, we don't have any problem with you Christians. We have a problem with you screwing up our funding for our new roads, our aqueducts, our latrines, and our marketplace. So just say the words. And if you're not, just like in the second century, in Smyrna, there was a man named Polycarp who was a disciple of the Apostle John that was late in his years, into his 80s. They took him before this, and he refused to do it, and they did this to Polycarp. They did this. There we go. Nope. Nope. Next. There. They did that to Polycarp. The question that we have to ask in 2022 is, how have we compromised our faith by pledging allegiance to the United States before allegiance to Jesus? In other words, what we as disciples of Jesus need to understand is that we have more in common with Christians that are in Iraq, North Korea, and China than we do with the atheist that lives on the cul-de-sac with us. The atheist that lives in the apartment complex. The atheist that is an American, that is patriotic. We have more in common with the Christian in Syria than that person. The book of Revelation is a rebuke of Christians who put their empire before the kingdom of God. Here's the second issue. 
Disciple, and it's going to get graphic, so just I'm going to keep it PG. All right. Disciples of Jesus freely committing sexual immorality. There's a church in Thyatira that is addressed in the second and third chapter. And it says this. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, and John uses, doesn't use her name, calls her Jezebel, which means a loose woman from the Old Testament. There is a female pastor in the church in Thyatira that was teaching what? Calls herself a prophet, and by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. I talk to Christians today, And some will say, we live in a very immoral society. And I always respond with, my goodness, I wish COVID, we could get through this so I could take you to Greece to show you what real sexual immorality immorality looks like. If you lived in a Roman or a Greek town, oftentimes you would take a, be very discreet here, a, a, a statue of male parts and you would put it on the outside of your home. So you would walk down the street and you would see these things all over the road. If you were in the Roman Empire and you're the man, you are considered the paterfamilias, the father of the family. You would have a wife that took care of your household you would have a slave, a pedagogue. We get our word pedagogy and pedagog, pedagogical from the Greek word pedagogue, which means a trainer. It was a slave that, tra- that educated your kids. You would have a wife that took care of the house. You would have a slave that educated your kids. You would go to work, and then you would uh, bathe in the common baths, and then you would have sex with prostitutes. Imagine... Imagine Las Vegas on cocaine. That's the ancient world. So when people became Christians, they were already doing this. They already had dozens of lovers all over the cities. They would go and sleep with prostitutes, multiple kids everywhere. And then they became disciples of Jesus and they understood what Jesus talked about when he talked about sexual immorality. Sexual, sexual immorality in the Bible is sex before marriage, adultery, and homosexuality. And so people, people become Christians, they're like, wait a minute, you didn't tell me I had to give up sex. I remember baptizing this guy in a rock band. He was like, dude, you didn't tell me I had to give up weed. I'm like, well, unless you have a, unless you have a script from a doctor, you're giving up the weed, bro. You're giving up the sex, you're giving up all of this. Why is it in the New Testament that idolatry and sexual immorality went hand in hand? Here's why. And this, I'm telling you, is one of the most pressing issues in our culture right now. In the ancient world, you would have a wife, you would have a slave, you would have sex with all kinds of people. It was normal. You became the spouse of someone knowing this was part of the deal. 
but it also was a part of business propositions and uh, business meetings. Here is a picture of a painting of an ancient business meeting in the ancient world. Can you, there we are. It's a meal. Some of you have taken clients out, right? You've taken clients out, right? For, for business, right? And you'll go to, gosh, Applebee's or sushi or whatever you will do. In the ancient world, you do the same thing. You take people out for business, but you would go to the temple. And after the meal, you would pay for the entertainment. And the entertainment was singers and dancers who were prostitutes. And then people would have a big orgy. It was normal until you became a disciple of Jesus. Idolatry and sexual immorality goes hand in hand, whether you're in the first century or you're in the 21st century. Here's why. If you're a human being, you are built to have something that's going to guide your behavior. Every single one of us don't... We don't show up as Car, uh, uh, Rene, uh, with a tabula rosa. As a, we, with, with, there's, there's, this, there's this culture that we're coming into. Here's why. When Jesus said, you're going to love your Lord, your God, with what? Mind. Heart. And body, right? Strength. And there's different, he says it a bunch of different ways. He says to worship Yahweh because Yahweh is going to tell us what to think. Yahweh is going to tell us what to feel. And Yahweh is going to tell us what we can and cannot do with our bodies. If you're in the ancient world and you don't worship Yahweh, but you worship the goddess Dionysus, she will tell you what to think, how to feel, and she will tell you it's absolutely no problem sleeping with all these different people. Idolatry, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, is always linked to sexual immorality. You are always, when it comes to sex before marriage, or homosexuality, or adultery, there's always someone telling you that's okay. There's always affirmation coming from somewhere. There is an idol in your life, call it your therapist, or your grandmother, or your buds that you hang out with at the bar after work, that will tell you how to think, how to feel, and how to orchestrate your body, and how to do it in a, in a way that works for you. why this matters. Jesus said in Revelation 1, 23 and 24, unless they repent of their ways, look at what it says. I will strike her children dead. Now that was a command in the first century that shows you in the first century how serious he was about it. So the question we have to ask ourselves that's brought up by the book of Revelation is this. How have we allowed our culture's permissible attitude towards sexual immorality cause us to ignore Jesus' clear instructions about a disciple's behavior? 
our church, if you're going to get married by one of our pastors, you cannot have sex until you're married. And they're like, but we've already bought a house and we're living together. And I'm like, cool. One of you is on the, on the couch. Who's going to the couch? You want to know why the Bible says that? Not because God doesn't like sex. God loves sex. Sex between a husband and wife can be an act of worship to God. Just like work can be an act of worship. Loving people can be an act of worship. Singing can be an act of worship. What happens, and the reason God says that, let's use the example of someone that wants to get married at our church, and they're not willing to refrain from sex before marriage, is, as the, old, as the farmer says, why buy the cow when you're already getting the milk? You're doing something that was meant for after marriage. And I'm telling you right now what you're doing by having sex before marriage is you are minimizing issues that you need to address before marriage that we're going to have to work out 7, 10, 15, 20 years later in our dynamic marriage class. It's issues that you are avoiding what God is saying because you have an idol in your heart. It could be your own privates that you want to follow, that you're going to put first, and you want to do what you want to do. And God gives you commands to protect you from something and to provide you with something. It's not that he doesn't love sex. He invented sex. He doesn't want you to hurt yourself or other people. Some of you have a problem with pornography. I would say probably 35% in the room, 35% of the men watching online and in this room have watched pornography easily in the last month. You want to know why God says that's a bad idea? Because you not only are hurting your relationship, you by watching pornography are allowing that company to get advertising dollars to turn around and do very vile and sick things to people who are hurting. It's not that he doesn't love sex. He wants it protected in a way that honors him. Number three, issue number three, I gotta do this fast. Disciples of Jesus allowing their faith to grow cold. Jesus told the church in Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one. Honestly, because are you one of these people that if I make the vomiting sound, you'll start to go, oh, if I go, oh, you'll go, oh, that would be funny. I think that's the most hysterical thing, but I don't want to do that to you, even though we would all laugh hysterically, right? So, but you know, Jesus is like, I, I'm going to vomit. When I think of people who aren't passionate about me as followers of Jesus, I want to vomit. I want to hurl. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, and this city, Laodicea, which we'll talk about when we get later into the study, we were this, there this, this past summer, this city is opulent. It's like you're in the United States two millennia ago. Jesus said to these people who are like Americans today, you say... I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus told the church in Ephesus, you have forsaken the love you had at first. 
And the reality is the reason people allow their love for Jesus to grow cold is because they always surround themselves with people where they're not being challenged in their faith. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have signed up to be a part of a group? But I do want to say this. If you're the most committed follower of Jesus in your friend circle, that's a problem. If you're the most committed one and you look around at your friend circle, that's a problem. And so every single Christian that John was writing to had lost their first love. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And it was because they weren't around the right people that were pushing them. I got a text last night from a friend of mine, Tim and Michelle, uh, members of CCV, but they're in Grand Bahama Island uh, in the Bahamas. And they've started a little campus of CCV there. And he sent me this video last night. Take, take a look at this right here. These are. Hi, CCV. We are here in Grand Bahama Island. We have some incredible people. Get in here, woman. All right. And we're just here to say CCV, we're Isn't that awesome? I absolutely love that. You know why there's a whole group of people in that room? Because Tim and Michelle are grabbing people together. And you want to be a part of this study. Do you want to be a part of what we're doing? And that's how you keep your faith going. Is that you are constantly surrounding yourself with people who are going to challenge you. So, the three issues that the book of Revelation addresses later on. With the super creepy, scary, bizarre, beautiful stuff is this. Disciples of Jesus putting their empire before Jesus. Disciples of Jesus freely committing sexual immorality as a result of idolatry. And disciples of Jesus allowing their faith to grow cold. I have been studying this for a year and a half. And I have become convinced that we are now going through what this book talks about. So my question to you is, are you ready? Are you ready for what's coming? Are you ready? You're going to read this week in chapters 2 and chapter 3. At the end of each of these letters to these seven churches, it says, to the one who is victorious. The old NIV said, to him who overcomes. In every one of these towns, they had a statue of the Greek goddess Nike. Nike used her name for their shoes. The Greek goddess Nike always had something in her hand. And it is a wreath. In the ancient Olympic Games, when you won, you didn't get paid. You got a wreath that came from an olive tree and they put it on your head. Jesus is saying, taking that language that they would have understood, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give your life as a victor's crown. The apostle Paul said, don't you know that in a race all the runners won, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to be victorious and to get a crown that will last forever. And that's what the book of Revelation ultimately is about. It's about you and I being victorious through the Lamb. Whatever's going to come, 
whatever challenges we're going to face, however many brothers and sisters fall by the wayside because they're putting sexual immorality or the empire or they're losing their faith by the wayside, we are going to press on and be victorious. And that's what we're going to jump into next week. Let's pray. To you, Jesus, we say you are our Lord. You rule everything. We reject all idols. We live and we are called to do good for the empire that we live in. To serve and to to do good works for the good of the places we serve. But we know we are part of first the body of Christ all throughout the world. And we know that there is a spiritual battle going on for our hearts and minds. And so in the face of adversity, in the face of malaise, we confess you are our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.